We're going to continue on in our series uh, through the book of Proverbs. So open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We have a number of passages that we'll look at this morning. How many of you have ever seen the, the movie in the 90s, The Father of the Bride? Oh, most of you. If you remember, it's about a father and the, the process of giving away his, his daughter. is George Banks, played by Steve Martin, who struggles in this movie to, to give away his daughter and what that looks like. And at one point in the movie, he's talking to his daughter's fiance, and he says uh, of his daughter, Annie is a very passionate person. And passionate people tend to overreact at times. Annie comes from a long line of major overreactors. Me, I can definitely lose it. My mother, she's a nut. My grandfather, stories about him are legendary. The good news, however, is that this overreacting tends to get proportionally less by generation, so your kids could be normal. Passionate people, major overreactors, people who tend to lose it. Those people in the hands of Steve Martin are pure comedy gold. But in real life, anger is the reaction that most frequently dis disrupts and dismantles marriages. It ruins friendships. It separates churches and divides families. It may seem funny on the screen, but it's not funny when we experience road rage when we're driving to work. And the fact that, that some of you do not maybe overreact doesn't mean that you're not exempt now from anger. So I sat down to study out what anger is in the book of Proverbs. I couldn't find anything in anywhere the, uh, the fact that anger in and of itself is sinful. Actually, anger in the Bible is basically a good thing. I'm gonna explain that, unpack that. Time and again, the Proverbs talk about anger in terms of control and patience or slowness. We see that a lot in the Old Testament. The subject of anger in the if Proverbs is not taboo, like we should never be angry. In fact, the Proverbs say the opposite. It's a sin to never get angry. If your life is one of ease and you never find yourself angry over injustice or angry over sin, then you're either really selfish or completely oblivious to your surroundings, both of which are not good as a Christian. Being angry in and itself isn't sinful, but blowing up in anger being hasty, being controlled by anger, those are sinful. In the book of Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. What did he say? He, he, didn't, he didn't write that, well, some people are going to be angry eventually, but if so, try to minimize the damage. No, he says, it's an imperative. No, you will be angry someday, and we should be angry sometimes, but, but be angry and don't sin. One old writer writes about this anger. He says, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. He's saying that we shouldn't have no anger, but that we shouldn't blow up in anger. Slow anger is the way to be. Why? Because that's how God is. God is slow to anger. We should look to be like God in our anger. In the book of Exodus, it shows our angry God. It says, the Lord, the Lord, our, a God, our God, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast and love and faithfulness. He is glorified in his anger. It's not a quick anger or an uncontrolled anger. It's slow and holy, righteous anger. 
But many in our city, if you were to go around and ask your neighbors, your coworkers, and, and ask them what they think of an angry God, they'd have a problem with that. They don't want a God that gets angry. They want a God of love. They think it's unfair that God could be angry. But listen, friends, you, you cannot have a God of love if he never gets angry. Because if you never get angry about anything, you don't love anything. If you love and you see the thing you love threatened, you're angry. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. So I want to drive at this, this thought this morning, simply, we are angry because we love. Love always drives our anger. And I want you to listen to this sermon this morning for yourself. You're going to be biblical counselors this morning for yourself. Because everyone seated here this morning gets angry. Some say, well, I just lose my temper. Spurgeon had something to say about that. He said, I once heard say a man that he was sorry that he lost his temper. I was uncommonly glad to hear that he had lost it, but regretted that he found it again soon after. You get angry. You do. I know you do. I've seen some of you angry. I know it's true. I get angry too. And we need help. We all need help in our anger. We should strive to be like God in our anger. Don't you want to be holy in your response to injustice and sin? So I want you to stop listening to the sermon for someone else. Don't allow your mind to start taking notes either written or mental, that are for someone else. I want you to listen for yourself. You are your own biggest problem. We need to hear that a lot. I'll say it again. You are your own biggest problem. And we need to focus on ourselves this morning. And we're going to look at some Proverbs about anger. And I want you to be the biblical counselor for yourself. If you're a human and you're here this morning, you're angry at some point. So how can you be angry and not sin? That's the question. We're going to journey together this morning to find the answer in Scripture. But before we do, join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just a great opportunity we've had to come together as the body of Christ and to hear of your work uh, throughout the world and in the Philippines. And we thank you for, for calling people, normal people, to go who love you, to serve you, in the country of Philippines. We thank you for the Jordans. God, we ask that you would continue to be honored and glorified in their lives. We thank you also for the chance we've had to come and worship together. Worship in song and worship in the reading of your word and worship in, in, in prayer and giving. And now, God, we have the opportunity to worship you through the preaching of your word. And we ask that you would be honored and glorified. God, I ask that the focus will be upon you this morning, that people will leave this place and they'll think, a lot of, of you and be, again, in all of you and your, and your work in their lives. And may we, as we listen this morning, recognizing that we, we, we have issues with anger and we're, we're working through that, God, we, we pray that you would teach us, that you would convict us and change us for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If you got a bulletin this morning in the back, you'll see an outline of of the points that I want to cover this morning. And the reason why I've done that in the last three weeks is just because we cover so many passages. So I'm not making any promises if that's going to continue past this series in the Proverbs. But I wanted to have those passages there as we, as we kind of go through those maybe in a, in a quicker fashion. 
But the two points I'm gonna cover is what is foolish anger and how does wisdom help? What is foolish anger and how does wisdom help? And if you remember, the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom, and there's insight there for us to, to learn from that addresses our issues with anger. And so we're gonna look at the problem and then the solution. So what is foolish anger? You know, there's this theme throughout the verses here. It's a subject of folly or foolishness, or the name fool. <clears throat> In ordinary language, a fool is someone who is out of touch with reality. They really don't know how things work. When the Bible talks about a fool, it's talking about someone who is out of touch with two basic facts. Uh, the world that is created and, and the order that comes with it. <clears throat> and the second fact is that the world has fallen. It is foolish to think that this world isn't built by God and has an order to it. There are boundaries in this world. And, you know, just look at the physical boundaries. You, you cannot eat anything you want. There are consequences, right? Not just in food, but if you decide to jug down laundry detergent, there's going to be consequences. There's order in our world. But not just the physical world, it's true of our spiritual world. It affects with the physical, affects the spiritual. If you always put the individual's happiness and good over the community or the common good, you will always have a social breakdown because there's an order to, to how God put this world, a way that God intended for us to live. And if you violate it, there'll be a breakdown. And we've talked about this many times. If you build your identity on anything more than God, if you build up yourself on your looks or your smarts or your success or what people think of you, there's going to be a breakdown. There's going to be most definitely insecurity. And frankly, that's the problem for most of us today. We, we build our lives, the world builds our lives on something other than God. And they continue to live that way. And because of that, there's all sorts of problems in our world. And we see throughout the scriptures, you, you can't just live any way you want. You, you can't just make it up as you go. You can't determine what is right and wrong just for you. It's destroying the society that we live. We, we see the effects today, right? I mean, have you read the news lately? In the last year? <clears throat> Issues with transgender and homosexual behavior and, and same-sex marriage and bisexual, all these issues are here because the world is trying to define for themselves what is truth and what is order. And they're, they're trying to make it up as they go along. But that's not how God defined and set things to be in order. And if you continue to live in denial of that, the Bible says you're a fool. There's a breakdown in your life because you're not made to live this way. But not just this world was created and has order, but this world has now fallen. Sin and evil have broken into the world. That's what it means. It means even though there's still order in the world, so if you live according to God's order, your general life will go better, but the world is still broken. And that means some, sometimes bad things happen to you out of your control, no matter what you do, no matter how you hard you try. And the fool... And scripture denies this truth. They don't want to live based upon this truth. So we enter the discussion about anger, and it makes sense that foolish people abuse anger. They don't understand the order of this world and the one who, who made it all, and they deny that there's really a fallenness at all to the world or in themselves. So the first verse, the first point there is the, the foolish blow up quickly. Proverbs 14, 29 
<clears throat> Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Before we look at the positive, see the negative. The, the foolish have a, has a hasty temper. They have a short fuse. They're, they're quick to light off. And their quick temper, they exalt folly. To exalt folly, it means to spread out folly for all to see. And the patient person, though, he's relaxed when, there's wrong, when they're wrong because they know about the world in which they live. They're, they're patient, and their patience gives space to the sinner to repent from their wrongdoings. Look at the next verse, Proverbs 29, 11. Proverbs 29, 11 says, <clears throat> a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. The fool easily gives over to his anger. His anger is in the inner core. It's, it's what's controlling him. But the wise man hold, holds it back. There's self-control and wisdom. Foolish people are those that do not understand the anger that is inside themselves and what and what their love, what they love is challenged, they, they blow up. Have you ever experienced this before? If you've maybe exploded in anger and, and now then you've cooled off and then you feel like a fool. Do you know why? Because you were a fool. That's what the scripture says. That's the point. When you get angry and you... And you, you you spout off that quickly, it distorts your view of things, your, your view of the situation, your view of yourself, your view of the world, a view of others. So, so stupidly, you make destructive choices. A foolish anger also, secondly, it stirs up strife. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Strife is usually present in a community, in a group, not because the issues are too great to overcome, but because anger rules instead of patience. The fool is called a hot-tempered man in this proverb. Literally, it is a man of wrath. It is a person who is easily angered. He is the opposite of the person who is slow to anger. And again, I want you to notice the scripture doesn't forbid anger. It says slow to anger. Anger is love in motion. Proverbs 29, 22. The next verse there <clears throat> says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Similar to the last proverb, a man of, a man of wrath is literally a hothead, someone who's, who's given themselves over to anger. They have lost the battle with their anger and completely give themselves over to it. They're no longer in control, but have allowed unrighteous anger to be their master. Well, third, foolish anger seeks payback. Proverbs 24, 28 through 29 says, Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will, I will pay the man back for what he has done. And in this passage, someone has gotten angry at someone else. And verse 28 says, in spite of the fact that you're angry, don't, don't just have, you, don't have a just, you don't have a just cause for that anger in that way. It's, it's a foolish anger. And he says that foolish anger seeks to, to pay back when they're wrong. Have you ever been snubbed before? That was like high school for me, just so you know. 
I mean, it seems like it happens all the time. You're snubbed, you know, you think you're in then and someone just kind of pushes you aside. Well, and why is it though that we get so much more angry when we're snubbed than anything else? We get so much angrier when we're spurned by a group of people or a person than, than when we hear about an injustice of a group of people in the other part of the world. Why is that? Well, it's because it's a disordered love. We have a disordered love. That's what St. Augustine has labeled it. In his classic word, Confessions, Augustine explains that sin is disordered love. It's love out of order. We must often think of anger in terms of behavior, bad deeds and actions, but Augustine helps us from a different angle. He says there's an order to love. He says we should love God, love others, and love ourselves, but that's not what happens. If what you're really looking for in people's approval or your significance, then you will lash on anger when that's threatened. There's so many things in this world that we should show righteous anger towards, abortion and sex slavery, a righteous anger towards that sin. But so easily our hearts race toward anger when our name is maligned or our benefits are removed. We have a disordered love. We're gonna get to that as we continue through. The last instance of foolish anger is that it weighs down others. Proverbs 27, verse three says, as stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Large stones and bags of sand are heavy stuff, but nothing is compared to being around a foolish, angry person. Their anger drains every good thing from the room. It's thick and heavy. It's, it's burdensome for other people. It's draining. It's exhausting. Because they usually want you to join in with their anger. They, they, they want you to hurl insults as easily as they do. This is why it's, it's very stressful and sometimes spending time with hot-tempered people. They, they, they are a weight to you. And so why does our anger go wrong? There are many things in this world that are good. Your family, your job, your political views, even social causes. There are many things that are good, but we turn good things into ultimate things. We don't just love things that are good, but we look at those things to give us happiness and significance and security and self-worth that only God can give. We make good things ultimate things when we love good things more than we love God. And then our love gets disordered. Your loved one gets a slight and you think that they don't deserve it. And so you mount an attack to take down the one that dared speak ill. You're not angry because of the burden uh, for that person thinking wrong or misguided decisions. No, you're angry because you feel their pain and you want vengeance for them. Their pain drives your anger. Disordered love creates a disordered anger. Being slow to anger gives time to find out the facts and allow God to work in the situation. And all through this, there's a, a low-grade level of bitterness that is hard to see. And we think maybe that bitterness is towards the other person, but ultimately, that bitterness is toward God himself. That's who we're really angry at. You know, if you build your life on things, I'll be happy when I have a family, or I'll be happy when I have the right job, or I'll be happy when I'm not stressed or busy, 
I'll be happy when, just fill in the blank. If that's what you build your life on, you're showing a subtle anger towards God for not giving you what you want. And life outside of God will never give you all the happiness that you need. So there's a a low-grade level of anger there, of bitterness, self-pity towards life, and more importantly, towards God. And anger is at the heart of so many problems in this world. We just don't want to admit it. And our anger is there because we are not getting what we love. Do you know that you're angry? Do you believe that you're angry? Because the only way you will grow is by admitting that you do anger. You were built by God to be angry, but because of sin, we, we do it in a sinful way. God desires for us to use our anger righteously, to be slow to anger. And the only way you can do this is if you admit it and understand how and when you get angry. If you don't admit your anger, you will disguise it from yourself and you'll hide from it. And how do we do that? Well, when someone comes and sins against us and we go to them and say, you deserve my anger, but you're not gonna get it. I'm not angry, but really you are. You're you're disguising it. You're saying, you deserve my anger, but you're beneath me. I'm far too above you to, for you to make me mad. But really, you're mad, and you're punishing them. You're making them feel bad. Do you realize that even if you are the victim, you, you've been wrong to admit your anger is an act of, of being vulnerable? It's an act of weakness. But the only way to have reconciliation in our relationships is for each side to show their weaknesses and their need for reconciliation, for resolution. When you don't admit your anger, you're just planting seeds of bitterness. And the longer this goes, the longer those seeds have time to germinate and to grow and to plant themselves deeper and deeper. And getting angry and not working through it is just planting seeds of bitterness. And bitterness is drinking poison, hoping that the other person will die. It never works. And after you admit you're angry, you need to discern why. Why am I angry? And this is crucial. This is crucial. And listen, you're a biblical counselor for yourself, so you need to find out why do you do what you do. Remember the verses earlier that I read in Proverbs 24 about payback. Let me read it again. It says, be not a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Who is this person talking to? Well, we may think he's talking to someone else, but I believe he's talking to himself. It's self-talk. You do that, right? You can admit it. You talk to yourself all the time. Maybe not out loud, but you do. You talk to yourself all the time. You talk to yourself every minute of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year. And here's the answer for these verses. What makes you angry is not just what happens to you, but what you tell yourself about what you think has happened to you. What makes you angry is not what you have lost, it's what you tell yourself it means that you've lost. What it means then, the the result. It's not that someone has hindered you, but that you convince yourself of what has transpired is wrong. Your internal video camera not only replays clips from what had happened, but you also then script and rehearse imaginary scenarios. You concoct the perfect unanswerable comeback 
that leaves the other person speechless and now guilty. And words and actions get thought out and planned and practiced in your head. Not only that, your mind has developed a criminal justice system and the courtroom scene is played out in your mind. Guess what? You play the role of the prosecuting attorney. But at the same time, you're also the innocent victim and the offended plaintiff. You are also the DA, the zealous investigator, the news reporter, the sheriff serving the summons, and the weak opposing lawyer who just can't get his act together. You provide witness after eyewitness, and that beautifully replay the same exact story, all in unison. You are also the stern and serious judge who is there to dole out the hefty punishment. By the way, you're the jury too, working together seamlessly to find that they're guilty. But that's not all. You're also the bailiff. That when the, the, the penalty comes down, you're the one that takes them to receive their just dues. And this internal judicial system is written so deeply into your soul in the nature of anger. It comes so easily. What makes you angry is not just what happens to you, but what you tell yourself, but what you think has happened to you. And here's the analysis. When you get angry, you have to say, what am I wanting in this moment? What am I needing right now? What is important to me right now? And ultimately, what am I loving? What is so important in this moment that I'm so angry that I'm willing to punch someone in the throat? I'm angry. What is it? And you have to ask these questions. And most times, you'll be embarrassed by the answer. You'll be humiliated when you get the answer because most times you're defending your ego or you're defending your pride or your self-esteem. It's not God. It's not his righteousness. It's you. You're really good at defending you and you're really good at defending your pride and you're really good at defending your comfort. So you have to pause and ask the question, why am I angry? What is the big thing that I'm defending? And sometimes those answers will take you right to the root of your own soul. Listen, friends, this will, this will most definitely revolutionize your, your, your uh, relationships with others. This will transform your life when you're able to discern what and why you're angry and why you came to that conclusion. And the point of the book of Proverbs is to help us to bring answers to those, those questions that we desperately need. We need wisdom for our soul. We need wisdom for our relationships. We need wisdom for our anger. And so let's see how wisdom can help. The second point there. The first under that is it brings self-control. Proverbs 16, 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Again, there's no banning of anger. It's, it's slowness to anger. Do you wanna be strong? Do you wanna have power in this life? And you need to be slow in your anger. The comparison the author gives us is that of a strong force that is able to overpower a city. It's the same one that can control their anger and respond the right way. The next verse, Proverbs 29.8. says, scoffers set his city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Scoffers, those who mock and scorn God are the hot-tempered ones. One commentator wrote of this. He said, the Hebrew wording pictures someone blowing on hot coals to produce a flame. 
And the sense is to incite or stir up the passions and violence of the people of a town and thus cause political and social unrest. They lack the desire to work things out. They don't want to come to a peaceful conclusion. They just want to see it burn. And wisdom brings us the skill to see our sin quick, or see our anger quickly, or an unrighteous anger, and to slow down. The second thing wisdom brings is, is forgiveness. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and in his glory to overlook an offense. It takes good judgment, someone who knows themselves to be slow to anger. And furthermore, you, you overlook the offense. You, you literally forgive. You don't hold it over their head. You, you let it go. Look at the next verse there, 20, Proverbs 25. Turn that one there, Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Maybe this proverb has bewildered you in the past. He's talking about two parties or individuals that are not getting along. In verse 21, he instructs us to be the one to help, to give what's needed, whether it's food or drink. We shouldn't starve them. And then he moves to verse 22 and he says that we should heap burning coals on his head. And you might think, yeah, I have this person I'm not getting along with. I don't really care from this point, so this sounds good. Where's the lighter? That's not what he means. It, and obviously, if you were to study the Old Testament and see it all together, it cannot mean that we take vengeance upon ourselves because it contradicts many other clear passages that speak against it. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I recompense. He will take care of it. And then he, but he says in verse 22, the Lord will reward you. So that's another reason. God's not gonna reward you for taking vengeance into your own hands. He doesn't need you to do his work. So what does verse 22 mean? Well, the context of these verses, he's talking about forgiveness. So you're, you're not trying to forgive someone if you're trying to harm them. Burning coals refers to the burning pain of shame that a person will feel when good is returned for evil. His shame is producing remorse and repentance. It's not that we want to somehow put them down. That's not the desire, the goal. We want them to repent of their sinful anger, their own good. And so heaping coals on them is to, to bring up again the good that we've done for them. Returning good for evil. Well, how does this work? I want to give you an illustration. You know, real life changes not when you get married. I thought that. I thought when I was single, it'd be a big change when you got married. Uh, you know, one day you're single, and the next day you're not. You have someone else sharing your house with you. But that's not when the big change happens, really. Big changes happen when you have kids, right? <laughs> if you're here this morning or married and have no kids, you're just on a really long date. <laughs> that's all it is. One day you'll have a kid, or a few more. The fourth, soon, right? <laughs> and I've heard that kids grow and become teenagers. I don't have any in my house yet. And then difficulty comes in different forms when they hit that age. I've heard from others. Sometimes in families, 
The teenage years come with a lot of strife, and it comes when the teenager decides that they don't want to do what mom and dad say anymore. Some are milder than others, but others are lively in their anger towards mom and dad. They tell them, in fact, I've heard, that they hate mom and dad, that mom and dad have controlled them. They don't understand them anymore, and they don't care about them anymore, and they don't want anything to do with them anymore. They've, they've had enough. They're done listening to mom and dad. And this hurts parents. Why? Because they have been there since day one. It's a serious strike against their hearts, a serious test for parents. Now, there's three things a parent can do in that moment. First, they can withdraw and just, just stay away because it hurts too much for them. So you withdraw and you give, up, you give the kids up to a self-destructive behavior and tendencies and you've eventually lost the kid. The second way is to go to the kid with guns blazing. They rage at you, you rage at them. In fact, you have 30 years of experience, so you'll probably win. But you still lose the kid. You become cold, you become isolated, you become separated. And the last thing, and I believe the only thing you can do is a surgical strike. If you stay away from their idiocy, it'll take over. And if you go at them and unleash the guns, then both of you become idiots. The only way to, is to, to have a specific strike. You target the problem, not the person. You target the idiocy and not the idiot. You know they're being an idiot, right? I can say that, right? Because you were all idiots at one point. They're acting like a fool is what I mean. And you come close and you say, I'm going to insist gently on the truth. That is the way it's going to be. This is what I'm going to tell you. When you come close, you walk with them. And you have to insist on truth. And in that, you absorb their anger. Because they're most definitely going to lash out in anger. And you absorb that anger and you don't, you don't pay it back. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their head, continuing to love them. You know, another illustration I found this week on forgiveness was from the life of Abraham Lincoln. The genius of Abraham Lincoln's leadership was his profound, practical way that he loved his enemies. In Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, she unpacks the character of Lincoln. She says, Lincoln's cabinet members were political rivals who often worked against him, but he was spectacularly and consistently fair, generous, and forgiving. He did not slam his political enemies. It's amazing how that would work today. He looked hard for reasons to pardon Union soldiers charged with desertion or dereliction of duty. He sought merciful release for Confederate soldiers taken prisoner. He sought to provide honorable citizenship to former slaves and to create honorable ways for former, former rebels to be welcomed back into the Union. And one of the most striking examples of Lincoln's large hard-heartedness occurred when he decided to appoint Salmon Chase as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Chase was extremely competent, but, but ambitious to be the president himself. And while serving as a treasury secretary, he had both overtly opposed and covertly sought to undermine Lincoln. And when people reminded Lincoln of what Chase had done against him, Lincoln responded, now I know meaner things about Chase than any of those men can tell me, but we have stood together in a time of trial, and I should despise myself if I allowed personal differences to affect my judgment of his fitness for the office. Lincoln's personal secretary later commented, said, 
probably no other man than Lincoln would have had in this age of the world the degree of generosity to thus forgive and exalt a rival who had so deeply and so unjustifiably hurt him. Wisdom brings forgiveness. And as believers, we should follow through in that example given for us. So wisdom brings self-control, brings forgiveness. Third, it, it slows us down. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The wise person has a ready answer, but they're still thinking long and hard about how they should say it, when they should say it. Wise people think first before talking. And how often are we quick to fire back? Sometimes pointed sarcasm at people is masked in humor, but in reality, it's just a form of evil speech. The word sarcasm comes from a French word, sarcasme. It means literally to gnash your teeth and to tear flesh. And we're quick to speak, we play the fool. Whether our intention is to give our opinion or a sarcastic remark, wisdom says we should slow down and think first before speaking. Wisdom says we should be slow, pondering how to give an answer. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Well, the last familiar verse is Proverbs 15, 1, and it talks about diffusing wrath. The verse says, Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many times have we been shot at by a word, by a phrase, by words coming at us? And what do you want to do in your flesh in response to that? Some just want to brush it off, but others want to fire back. It is sinful to begin an angry confrontation. It's equally sinful to continue a disagreement with a harsh word. Wisdom insists that we put our selfish anger to death and we don't respond angrily when we are sinned against. Sanctification is not only about holiness in situations that we initiate, it's also in situations that we're drawn into. It's easy to provide a soft answer to a soft question. It takes little wisdom and little godliness to do that, but it's a great challenge to provide a soft answer to a very harsh question. It's a greater challenge to still to answer gently when rebuked harshly. It takes unusual wisdom and godliness to resist the temptation to snap, to retaliate, to answer in the same way. And sanctification is not only putting to death those sins that are so naturally spill out of us, those sinful behaviors that we tend to initiate, but it's also putting to death the sins that, that come uh, running at us and roaring at us when we're not even expecting it. What is your natural response when you're treated harshly? Now, how many marital conflicts could be wiped away if one of the offended parties were first to step out and absorb the anger and answer with gentleness? They don't repay, but they forgive. They cover the offense and seek forgiveness. What would happen in our marriages is if this were a consistent pattern? I believe there would be less fights and more peace in the home. How easy it would be to stop your tongue before lashing back. Instead, we, we don't. We, we, we answer in harshness. Instead, we should give grace to the hearer. 
We should assume better motives. We should show love. And when I speak of marriages, I speak to you men first. We should be the first to forgive. We should be the ones leading this. We shouldn't wait for our brides. This is on us. We take the first step, not because we have to be first, but because we're the ones leading our families in repentance. We're the ones leading them and showing, displaying what repentance looks like. A soft answer turns away wrath. And so doing, you will keep burning coals on their head. In the good way. You're giving them space and time to work through their anger, to repent. So as we wrap up the subject of anger, do you realize that you're angry? You know, ultimately, the Bible says we're angry at God. We don't want to admit it. This world is angry at God. We want this, we want that. We wanted this, we wanted that, and God didn't give it to us. We're in denial, but the proof is there. We're mad at him. And, and listen, it's the, it's the most unjustified, most disordered, and most hurtful rage possible. Jesus experienced the rage of humans when he came to earth. And he came vulnerable. Jesus came to earth and he became killable. And you know what we did? We killed him. We got close and we took hold of him. We took him to a tree and we nailed him there and we mocked him. You say that you're the king? Well, go ahead, king, take yourself down. We mocked him and we beat him and we tortured him and we reviled him. And Jesus doesn't respond in kind. What was he doing? He absorbed it. We were angry at God and God didn't withdraw from us. He didn't come back with guns blazing just to give us what we deserve. He went to the cross and he told us the truth about ourselves and he absorbed our rage at him. And he didn't just take our anger pointed at him, he also took the wrath that we deserve. Remember in the garden he prayed, take this cup from me. And God answered, no, it is my will that you take the cup. Do you remember the cup? You know, the cup throughout the Old Testament is the cup of God's anger, our deserved wrath for our sins. And on the cross, Jesus not only took our anger pointed at him, he took God's wrath, God's wrath that we deserved. And then he spoke from the cross the most gentlest word, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it got me thinking if, if Jesus can do that, if he can absorb the wrath, you know, unjustified, and he can give a gentle answer, we can do it too. There's no reason that we should say we can't take the anger of and hurt from other people because if you see Jesus taking our anger and infant cost to himself, then you will fully understand what it means to absorb anger. To be able to forgive 
anger and to walk with others in anger. And you can say, hey, I've been wronged, but I wronged God. And at an infinite cost, he responded with cosmic gentleness and love. And when we do that, when we respond that way, we're like God. Your ego has changed. Your pride is laid low. And you love other people the way that God loved. My prayer is that as a church, as a family, that we will grow in this. We will understand. We will be good biblical counselors of ourselves. Diagnosing our anger. Seeking to become more like God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you that you have handled anger so beautifully and so perfectly. In one fell swoop, you destroyed sin without destroying the sinner. And your death on the cross frees us from our disordered love of this world. You give us the power we need to respond rightly to others who are in anger. You give us and you fill us so that we can imitate you. Father, I pray that we are slow to anger. God, help us to be angry at the right things in the right way for your honor and for your glory. We know we have a ways to go, but make us wise in this world. Help us to follow the example of Jesus. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.